We turn in God's holy word to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And now our text is verses 19 through 22. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, 
and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we give our attention today to one more text from the third chapter of 1 John before moving on to consider some of the highlights of the fourth chapter. But the text that we consider today is connected to the preceding context by the two opening words of verse 19, and hereby. That reminds us that the apostle is still treating the subject of living in God's fellowship, how that comes to expression, namely by loving the brethren in deed and in truth. Such a life is a living testimony of the fact that God's truth abides in us and is the expression of our gratitude to God and of a true faith. Fundamental to understanding this word of God, as well as much of the rest of John's epistle, is to understand that the life of Christ in us necessarily bears fruit. It is, after all, the life of Christ, the Holy Redeemer. Those fruits are not only borne by us, but are to be seen as evidence of Christ's work in us, and therefore evidences of a true faith. It is for that reason that holiness, as evidence of a true faith, strengthens our confidence toward God and the assurance of our hearts before him. It is important to us, to our daily lives as God's children, that we understand that. For as Calvin put it, a genuine assurance before God we cannot have except his spirit produces in us the fruit of love. And again, that's not because we found our confidence in our works, but because God works in his people in such a way that a godly walk of life cannot be separated from faith and are his way of revealing the relationship between himself and his people, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit directs our attention in this text to the blessedness of confidence toward God. As we receive the instruction of the text, we find ourselves living with assured hearts, overcoming significant hindrances, and seeing the evidence of God's blessing. Living with assured hearts is certainly our desire when we are aware of the greatness of him with whom we have to do. 
The idea of the text, if we bear in mind the theme of this epistle, is that of a child of God who needs to be assured of his father's love. Perhaps the greatest need of a child is the assurance of being loved. A child soon knows that the relationship in which he stands to his parents is a special relationship. But there are children who are not loved by their fathers. As with all other relationships, so sin brings, has brought adverse effects to family relationships so that, according to Titus 2 verse 4, mothers even have to be taught to love their children. That is, to show them what true love is all about. Children need that stability, that assurance of being loved. The Bible teaches that belonging to the exercise of love is that of discipline, corrective instruction and training. But for little children who do not yet discern discipline as an act of love, or who, may God graciously forbid, experience discipline not as an act of love, but of uncontrolled anger, it seems that when father is angry, he doesn't love them anymore. And there are many things a child might do to make father angry. But it is critical to the child that he knows that dad loves him. Loves him even when chastisement might appear to blot out that love. Well, the same is true with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. To live in terror of God is not the life of a Christian. To live as a slave merely out of bitter compulsion, is not the life of a Christian. To live out of love, in gratitude to God, is the life of a Christian. But for that life, we must live with a heart assured that our relationship to our Heavenly Father is healthy, is one of love. We must live, in other words, in the consciousness of abiding in his fellowship, in the embrace of his covenant life and love. The norm of the Christian life is that assurance of abiding in God's fellowship. That's because assurance belongs to the essence of faith. Our union with Christ is such that we know his fellowship and therefore our fellowship also with God our Father. And because that faith, that living union with Christ and the embrace of Christ and all his benefits also comes to expression in loving the brethren, our assurance is strengthened by a living conviction that we are 
of the truth, as verse 19 tells us. The reference there to the truth is God's truth. And when we speak of God's truth, we must understand, of course, that all truth is of God. But we have to distinguish between this truth and that which all men are able to discern by studying the various relationships in God's creation. A chemist, for example, might be able to determine the truth of how a certain compound of chemicals affects a certain disease in the body. A mathematician is able to do his work because there is always a certain order or truth that 2 plus 2 always equals 4. But the truth spoken of in our text is that which God reveals of himself. John speaks of that which is agreeable to the word of God whether that be in doctrine, in ordinances, in sentiment, in conversation, in walk of life. The truth is that which is in harmony with God, with all that he reveals of himself. To be of the truth, therefore, is to live and act, and to be and to have the very root of our life In the truth, to live out of the principle of the truth. That's what John writes about in his third epistle when he says in verses 3 and 4, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Love is the expression of being in the truth. Being of the truth. That's love. Not as the world views love, but as we've explained that holy concept from God's own word, that love, agape, is the chief expression of being of the truth. Such a life, a life of the truth, strengthens the assurance of our hearts before God. Now that idea is not strange to us, being expressed also in the Heidelberg Catechism, in Lord's Day 32, which which introduces the Christian's necessary expression of gratitude to God. Necessary why? In part, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. That belongs to the merciful way in which God deals with us. While assurance belongs to the essence of faith, the daily comfort of such assurance is found in the way of sanctification, of walking in fellowship with God through a careful attendance to the means of grace, a daily putting off of the old man and putting on of the new. 
And let us be clear, because this long-standing use of the expression in the way of has been called into question and portrayed as if it betrays conditional theology, in the way of does not mean because of. In the way of does not mean because man does this, God does what follows. In the way of speaks of the way in which the Holy Spirit works salvation in the life and experience of the child of God. The Holy Spirit testifies to our faith also by means of the word of God revealing to us our salvation, our sanctification for what it is. Not something we do in the attempt to gain something with God, but the fruit of faith and therefore of Christ's life and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's also consistently the teaching of our canons of Dort. And if you're taking notes, confer the third and fourth head of of doctrine, articles 11 and 17, and the fifth head of the canons, article 10, to mention some examples. The sure way to lose the sense of God's favor is to fail to walk in fellowship with God. It's possible, let us understand, that a a believer lives carelessly. How easy it is for us to neglect daily study of the word of God in prayer. How easy it is to neglect our calling, to cultivate our spiritual lives, our holiness, to live as if the Christian life is nothing more than submitting to the means of grace from Sunday to Sunday. Such failure, however, which places the pursuit of earthly things and earthly pleasures above daily fellowship with God is to ask, for spiritual deadness and fruitlessness in our lives. To live with assured hearts is to live as before the face of God. Coram Deo was a Latin expression emphasized by John Calvin and undoubtedly many of the other reformers in the day when Latin was the language of the church and of education. Coram Deo means in the presence of God or before the face of God. To live with assured hearts is to live by faith before the face of God. And when we live in that consciousness and realize that this expression speaks of more than God's sovereignty and his all-seeing eye, but speaks emphatically of his relationship with his people in Christ, that we have confidence toward him. The idea of assuring our hearts before him is not merely that we're not afraid of him any longer. 
It isn't just a matter of calming our hearts before him. Although that itself is a consequence of assuring our hearts before him. But literally, it means that we persuade our hearts. The question is, persuade our hearts of what? And the answer undoubtedly is that we persuade our hearts that we ourselves are partakers of all the blessings of Christ, that we belong to him, and therefore by him have access into that very fellowship of God. Salvation is ours. Salvation with all the significance of that word. Not only do we have the forgiveness of our sins, but we are partakers of all the grace and mercy and love of God himself. God has blessed us, to use the language of Ephesians 1 verse 3, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He has given us all things in Christ in order that we should be holy and without blame before him, Ephesians 1 verse 4. Of that, we are persuaded personally. We are children of God, regenerated, adopted members of his family. We have faith. We are saints. That isn't mere speculation. That isn't a strong possibility. That isn't presumption. That's a heart conviction. A certain knowledge and confidence. But it's a conviction by evidence. It's a heart conviction critical to our living in the fullness of joy. Now, if we are led to ask, why is it that we must persuade our hearts that we are saved, that that we belong to Christ? Why is it that the assurance that is ours by faith, and as a part of faith, must yet be strengthened in our own consciousness by such persuasion? And that question brings us to the second main point of the text. Confidence toward God is a confidence that must overcome significant hindrances. In the first place, we still have our old nature. That isn't something we hide behind. So that we willfully live in sin and excuse ourselves by that old nature. Rather, that's the focal point of our constant spiritual struggle as the children of God. That old nature is not only sinful and corrupt through and through, but from the influence of that old nature rises doubt. Doubt which would call into question God's promises and our own relationship to him. That doubt attacks our faith. Doesn't overthrow it, that's impossible. 
but it does attack our faith, particularly that aspect of our faith which is that assured confidence. The struggle that the Apostle Paul experienced and to which he gave expression in Romans 7 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the same struggle that we face even daily. So that we can say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. It's that very struggle that presses out of us the cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? from the body of this death. And by that very cry, our old nature would call into question God's promises and our own relationship to him. But don't overlook the hope that immediately comes to expression, even in the same breath, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Confidence toward God, you see, must overcome that hindrance of our own sinful flesh. And it does so by faith. But the Holy Spirit would also testify to our spirits that we are the children of God and that our faith is true and not counterfeit. And he does that by giving us to live as children of God. He gives us to lay hold by faith not only of the wonder of our justification in that one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but he gives us to see by faith that that work of God, Christ's work, extends beyond the cross to what he does in sanctifying us by our love in deed and in truth. We know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. The second great hindrance that we face in having confidence toward God is the testimony of our own heart. Verse 20 speaks of the possibility that our heart condemns us. And elsewhere in Scripture we read of our conscience testifying to ourselves, either of good or of evil. Here, however, we read of the heart. Fundamentally, the conscience and the heart are the same. That is, the conscience is the testimony of the heart and mind as to whether our actions or thoughts and motives meet the high standard of God's righteousness. Our conscience passes judgment as to whether what we do is right or wrong. But this text, that this text refers to our heart rendering that judgment, is because of the fact that we judge as those who have the law of God written on our hearts. 
If our heart should condemn us, therefore, that in itself is not a bad action of the heart. In fact, it's evidence of the Spirit's enlightening power in our own lives that we stand before the living God in the consciousness not only of His greatness and holiness, but of our smallness and sinfulness. To see ourselves as we are before God, to know how great our sins and miseries are, is one necessary aspect of the true knowledge necessary for the enjoyment of salvation. And so our heart condemns us. It constantly testifies that we have nothing in ourselves, that we are hopelessly guilty before God as we stand by nature. We have nothing in ourselves to bring for him by which we could gain entrance into the fellowship of his life and love. And that's true also when it comes to our love for the brethren. Even should we walk perfectly according to the calling God has given to love the brother in deed and in truth, we could make no claim for God's fellowship by our works because we've simply done what was our duty to do. We've merited nothing. That's why it's foolishness to look at love for the brother or any other good work as the way by which we merit salvation. Standing before the greatness and glory of God, we know that we have no such claim by our works or our obedience because our heart condemns us. We're brought to stand before God, whether by the preaching of the gospel or in our devotional life. And what happens when we stand before God? Our heart condemns us because of the sin that still cleaves to us and which has corrupted all our actions, our thoughts, even our motives. We know that the testimony of our hearts is true, too. That condemnation's real, it's accurate. If we are called before the judgment seat and our heart is asked, what do you have to say concerning this defendant? Has he kept God's law perfectly? The heart must answer, in truth, not at all. Has he violated that law then? Yes, thousands of times. How long has this been the case? Since infancy. Has he continued to violate the law? Yes, even to this very hour. Hasn't he repented from his sin and turned from it? Yes, but he, he turns from one to commit another. And sometimes he even falls back into that which he previously had confessed. Which laws has he violated? You name a law and he's violated it. 
That's the testimony of our heart. And consequently, if all we receive is the testimony of our heart, we can have no confidence toward God. Then that testimony becomes a hindrance. The natural result of that condemnation proclaimed by our heart is that we would attempt to hide from God, knowing that we have no basis for fellowship with Him whom we have so offended by our sin. But the blessedness of the gospel also set forth in this text is this, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And here it is, there is here that by which we can overcome this significant hindrance to our confidence toward God. It isn't in anything we have done or can do. It isn't in any personal claim. It's rather in a particular relationship. over against that testimony of our heart, which would seem to leave us no escape from that condemnation and certainly no access to, into the fellowship of God, stands God himself, who is greater than our heart and who knows all things. And notice the emphasis upon the greatness of God comes to expression especially in his knowledge. What's the knowledge referred to here? And how does the fact that he knoweth all things provide us any comfort? Well, the text is not focusing merely on the fact of God's omniscience. The truth that none can hide himself in secret places that God shall not see him. The emphasis of the text is, is not that God sees so much more keenly than we do, penetrating even to the thoughts and intents of the heart, and therefore exposing our condemnation. Rather, the text would call our attention to the wonderful truth of God's knowledge of all things, including the work of His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord and Savior in our hearts. Even when our hearts condemn us, God knows the relationship in which we stand to His dear Son. He established that relationship by His grace and His sovereign good pleasure. And knowing all things, he sees that the principle of our heart is rooted in love. The love which he has shed abroad there by his Holy Spirit. Because he knows all things, he finds that even when our hearts condemn us, that doesn't change the relationship in which he stands to us in Jesus our Savior. 
He sees in us that principle, that beginning of that new obedience by which we love him and all who are his. So we see that for Christ's sake, our heart's condemnation of us, while true with respect to our old nature, cannot prevent us from having confidence toward God and abiding thus within the fellowship of his covenant life. The grace of God is greater than all our sin. And thus the hindrance is removed. Put positively then, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Again, it isn't that there isn't anything to that testimony of our heart which would condemn us. Surely, we face the constant testimony and conviction of our own sin. And that's necessary, too, that we might humble ourselves before God in true heartfelt repentance. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 34, verse 18. But while convicted, we are not condemned. While exposed, we are not left without hope, but rather are pointed to him alone in whom we have accepted then we can approach the throne of grace with boldness as a son approaches his loving father in the confidence that he will be received and embraced. And therefore there is also the testimony of our heart which does not condemn us, but by which the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. When you stand before the question, are you sincere in your confession? Our heart answers in truth, yes. I confess Christ not because of what I gain from it, not because it makes me a respectable human being. I confess him because I can't do otherwise. I love him. I stand in an inseparable relationship with him, a covenant relationship of unbreakable fellowship and love, and his life comes to expression in mine. Though I grieve my sins, I stand in such fellowship with him who is my Savior that his life comes to expression in mine though the brilliance of that expression is dimmed by my own sinfulness, his love for me bubbles over in my love for God and the brethren. So we sing from Psalm 16. The versification of Psalter number 27 stands at two, I love thy saints who fear thy name and walk is in thy sight. They are the excellent of earth, in them is my delight. 
And so we are given to see the evidence of God's blessing. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Confidence toward God is vital when it comes to prayer. That's evident by many references in Scripture to prayer. Think, for example, of what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 12, when speaking of our relationship to Christ, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. In the epistle to the Hebrews, there are several references to the vital connection between confidence and our necessary approach in prayer. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need is the closing exhortation of chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 10, We read in verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And in verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the way to pray. And the only way to do so is to remember the manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. But when such confidence is ours, then whatever we ask, we receive of Him. Now what does that mean? There are those who lay claim to a so-called prosperity gospel, sometimes called the name-it-and-claim-it theology, by which they insist we can get what we want from God by our faith-filled words. That corrupt teaching fits with the carnal-mindedness that stands antithetically opposed to true spirituality, true Christianity. The whatever we ask is not a reference to any earthly thing we might desire. It is not true, let us understand, in cases of sickness, that if we have enough confidence toward God and and pray for recovery, God will grant it. Rather, it's understood in harmony with all Scripture That true prayer is prayer that seeks God's glory and therefore is in harmony with his will. And just to continue the reference to sickness and to apply it to a a very serious illness, perhaps even a cancer that very likely is terminal or at least is very bleak in its prognosis. In our confidence toward God, we may approach him knowing that also this affliction is in his hands to accomplish his good purpose. 
even if it be in a way that we do not understand. We approach him in that confidence, seeking his will, expressing our desire for recovery, if that may be his will, but also seeking grace to see that his way is perfect. And so to have every need supplied in facing this particular trial. You see, people of God, this expression, whatsoever we ask, is something desired by our regenerated heart, not by our flesh. To seek earthly things, to seek the fulfillment of our lusts, to approach God as some divine vending machine, is an approach to God that is idolatrous. The consequences we see in in James 4, verse 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye might consume it upon your own lusts. It's to put self above God, and to seek self rather than God. The apostle has in mind especially spiritual things that's fitting with the entire context here. Our regenerated heart desires above all things the forgiveness of sins, that is the consciousness of that forgiveness which ensures access into God's fellowship. We desire deliverance from evil. We desire to honor God by our lives and testimony. We ask of him all the blessings of salvation, especially strength of faith in Jesus Christ and sanctification. We ask for grace to stand no matter what happens, no matter what trials we face. Those are the things that we seek him when we approach him in confidence. And he certainly grants our petition. In the way of such prayer, we receive the fullness of those spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Of that, our Heidelberg Catechism assures us too in expounding the truth of Scripture concerning prayer, as we heard this morning. God will give His grace and Holy Spirit to those and to those only who with sincere desires continually ask them of Him and are thankful for them. And as we approach him in childlike reverence and confidence, which are the foundations of our prayer, we see that he who is our Father in Christ will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents will deny us earthly things. And the apostle adds, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's really the flip side of Proverbs 28, verse 9, where we are told, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Only he who keeps God's commandments dwells in him, and he in him. If we do not keep his commandments, it's because we're not living in confidence toward him, are not living in fellowship with him. But if we keep his commandments, walk in sanctification, 
Our desire is after God. And we seek to do that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Also in prayer. And what a blessing so to live in the consciousness of God's fellowship. For that life of holiness, that life of seeking after God, is the life that he himself brings to expression by the wonder of his grace in Christ Jesus. In this way, and only in this way, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou art greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. We thank thee that thou who hast given us thy Holy Spirit and the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ doth also continue thy work in us, establishing and strengthening our faith, and therefore our confidence that we are of the truth. Grant, Father, that we may do those things that are pleasing in thy sight, to thy name's honor and glory, and for Jesus' sake. Amen.